Hi, I'm Mark Kernian and I teach chemistry. Hi, I'm Jack Kernian and I teach physics. And welcome to the My Science podcast, where learning about chemistry and physics becomes what it always should have been fun and interesting, yet serious and valuable. Mark and I are identical twin brothers who started our careers as engineers and switched to science education more than three decades ago. That's over 60 years of combined experience teaching high school students about the amazing insights of the physical sciences. And we want to share that experience with you. So if you have any comments or questions about today's podcast, send them to kernian at myscience-prep.com. That's K-E-R-N-I-O-N at myscience-prep.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, Jack, we're going to start out today's podcast with a little question. And I want you to be as honest as you can when you answer this. Okay, sounds good. Is life fair? Is life fair? Do you think, <laughs> do you think that life is fair? Um, probably some fundamental uh, the basic level i think it is but then as we begin interacting with other people i think maybe gets a little unfair so like just interactions with people make it unfair that's what i'm thinking like off the top of my head you know yeah because like some people take more than they should yeah yeah maybe maybe i but i I don't want to say that there's a particular reason for that you know the human nature but it seems like there's a sense of unfairness built into the social structure okay well, I think that the person who I want to talk about today and the concept of chemistry that is a natural outcropping of talking about this person really asks, like, basically, is life fair? Uh, because this particular person is oftentimes referred to as the most luckless chemist. Most luckless? Most luckless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Isaac Asimov called him that. Oh, wow. You've heard about Isaac Asimov? I have, yes. You know how many books he's written? I'm thinking quite a few based on the way you're asking the question. Well, he, it's, it's a huge number of books, that, but he doesn't write them all. I oh. think he had people that helped him, and he just put his name on them. Okay. But that's Isaac Asimov. That's, an, that's for another day. Now, the idea of, of life being fair really um, is a question I think that should come up when you talk about a, a scientist named Carl Chalet. Have you ever heard of Carl Chalet? Not Carl Chalet. I've not heard. Of, I've heard of a French Chalet, but that's about it. <laughs> well, you mean a chalet? Uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is well, Swedish. That's the way I pronounce this is it. Okay. Swedish. Carl Chalet. Carl Chalet. Uh, Carl Chalet. I remember the first time I saw his name in print. Mm-hmm. It was in a book by a guy named Bill Bryson. Have you ever heard of Bill I, Bryson? I have. Yeah, I have heard of Bill Bryson. Mm-hmm. Any any title uh, of the books that come to mind? You know, I think if I saw it, or when you say it, I'll probably remember, but. Honestly, yeah. I don't know right now. I mean, his most famous book, this is Bill Bryson's uh, most famous book, was like uh, A Walk in the Woods. Oh, yes. They made a movie out yes, of it. Yes, yes, yes. I think uh, the guy from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, who's Robert that? Redford? Robert Redford yeah. was in it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you know, that was one of his famous books. But the book that I read that Bill Bryson wrote was called A Short History of Nearly Everything. Okay. That was in that in that time frame. I was always struck yeah. by this when, when books that came out, like we're trying to answer like... All the questions in, uh, that anybody ever had in like one book, you know. Right. So, so there was that book uh, that was uh, about everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Yeah, I remember read when that, that book. Came out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when it came out? Um, what, what, I'm thinking 1990. Close. It was yeah. 1986 that okay. that book came out. Okay. And then in 1988, I know which one. You know which book about. I'm talking about? Stephen Hawking. Brief yeah, history of that? time. That was a brief history of yeah. time. Yeah, which sort of tried to summarize everything that we knew. Mm-hmm. It was one of those coffee table books where so many people. People bought, right? But practically no one understood, <laughs> yeah, because they, they wanted to have it just because they 
they thought they should have it sitting on their coffee table. It's like a signal to the person coming into your house. Hey, I'm a smart person. I'm scientific yeah, or something right. like that. Yeah. So I was always struck by that. And then, and then Bill Bryson in 2003 comes out with a short history of nearly everything. Okay. He didn't use the word brief, but you know, it was like yeah. a short history of nearly everything. And it actually was very, very good. I remember reading it and, and, and thinking, oh, this is really a nice synopsis of so many things and putting it all together. It was really good. Uh, so a short history of nearly everything by Bill Bryson. And in that book, he talked about all kinds of subjects, and one of them was chemistry. And uh, a person that he talked about uh, in the chemistry chapter was Carl Chalet. Okay. And uh, so that's the first time I, I saw his name in print. And I don't know whether or not you feel this way. Sometimes when you look at something the first time and you say it in your mind, it just comes out totally pronounced totally differently than what it actually is. Okay, give me so an example. So if I example. told you, yeah. uh, his, his name is spelled S-C-H-E-E-L-E. What would you think, without like, me saying that he's Swedish and his name is Chalet? Maybe well, Skeel? Skeel, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Right. I, I would always, I remember um, talking about him in school after I read about him when I was teaching a, a chemistry class and calling him, him Carl Skeel, because that's what I thought it was. Because we tend to do that a lot, like sort of Americanize different things. There's a there's a scientist. Uh, his name was Raleigh, and I remember I was mispronouncing his name for a while in class too. So do you remember what you said? Rayleigh or something. Right. Like no, that. No. <laughs> this is a long time ago, though. I've since yeah. learned my lesson. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty common when you're not like um, you know indigenous to that language, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for you to put these different pronunciations on. Even like the, the most you know famous quantum mechanic. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, who was the father of quantum mechanics in your mind? Niels Bohr. Uh, well, in terms of like the atom, perhaps, but just Eisenberg? in terms of quantum. Well, uh, he's a very important quantum mechanic mm-hmm. too. But the first person to think about the idea of a quantum. Oh, that's Max Planck. Max Planck, yeah. yeah. And so many people pronounce his name Planck. In mm-hmm. fact, I've heard chemistry teachers say, oh, Max yeah. Planck this and Max Planck that. But yeah. it's Planck yeah. if you pronounce it the right way. Yeah. I remember I had these uh, set, this set of twins in class several years ago. Their last name was uh, spelled S-C-H-R-A-G-E. And they were twins. And I always thought they were the Schrage twins. Mm. But but their name was actually, I heard other te- teachers <laughs> talking about them and other kids. It's Shroggy. <laughs> and so you always felt wow. kind of full. And ever since then, when I have students, I always make them on an index card um, write their name out phonetically. That makes so that sense. I, so that I call them by the right name. Because I always feel embarrassed when I can't say it the right way. Yeah. So so this is not well, Carl Schiel. Okay. Real quick, though, um, I mean, I think that that name is a little bit uh, understandably mispronounced. But Raleigh? I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a city in North Carolina. <laughs> I'm not sure why I had that in mind. It just that's how it came out when I talked to a student about this, I remember. It, it's, oh, well, boy. Just, I think it was probably something in your background that you mm-hmm. looked at it. Um, that point you in that direction. Yes. You know, even our name has a bit of a choice sometimes when you how you just how you say it. Like I always say, my name is Mark Kernian, and uh, but other people look at it and they say they say like Kernian, mm-hmm. you know, or a, a Kern ion. Well, that know, makes sense is, from a chemistry exactly, point of view. Yes, yeah, the greatest ion of all. <laughs> I always tell people, but anyway, Carl Chalet was a Swedish scientist, uh, a Swedish chemist. But really, um, more than anything, he was uh, a, a pharmacist, and mm. that's how he made his money. Uh, and, but he did a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. When he had his spare time, he would um, dabble in, in, in discovery, especially uh, chemical discoveries. 
And so um, Carl Chalet uh, was not given credit for everything that he did because he wasn't, you know, a famous chemist of the of the time until later on in his life. But uh, initially, he did a lot of work in obscurity, hmm. and so he was never given the credit that he was supposed to get. Um, in I'm that, kind of intrigued now about where he didn't receive credit. Yeah, okay, I'm glad. you're setting it up well. Go ahead. Okay, so Bill Bryson talked about Carl Chalet in, in the book and recognized that although. Um, besides being luckless in terms of not being given credit for his scientific discoveries, also had a little bit of bad luck in that, like many scientists at the time, used to taste everything that he would experiment on. And so he actually he died at the age of 43. And Bill Bryson said he was found dead at his workbench, surrounded by an array of toxic chemicals, any of which could have accounted for the stunned and terminal look on his dead face. Wow, that is luckless. <laughs> so, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of luck, uh, you know, in terms of getting credit for things and, and in terms of dying at a, at a pretty young age. Um, he did his work in the middle 1700s, so in the 18th century, when other scientists were working on things as well. And this luckless streak uh, uh, became exacerbated when, even though he discovered eight elements, chlorine, fluorine, manganese, molybdenum, nitrogen, and, well, I'll tell you the most important one when we come back from the break. Hi, I'm Ben from the band Sonic Acrylic, who provided the music for this podcast. We just put out our new album, Alternates. Here's a clip from track four, Disaster Oil. That was Disasteroid off of our new album, Alternates. To hear more, go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you like to listen. Or head on over to our website, sonicacrylic.com. Chlorine, fluorine, manganese, molybdenum, nitrogen, and oxygen. He got credit for none of them originally. He he, he found oxygen? He discovered oxygen, yeah. Wow. So uh, is there anybody who comes to mind that you think... Yeah, uh, I would think Joseph Priestley. Joseph Priestley actually... Uh, published a paper a year after Chalet discovered oxygen. It's just that Chalet didn't publish the paper until several years after Priestley did. Wow. So uh, Priestley is oftentimes given credit for discovering oxygen, um, but uh, his view of what it was was not um, um, completely correct. In fact, wow. it was very wrong. Uh, wow. He did discover oxygen, but uh, he just looked at it as something called deflogisticated air. That sounds pretty complicated. Have you ever heard of phlogiston? Sure, yeah. Uh, And so phlogiston used to be the way in which scientists would would talk about combustion when things burned. It's like a material you have, you have something an had to have. Of that? I think so. I mean, it's something that burn had to contain this stuff called phlogiston. That's right. Right? Phlogiston. Phlogiston. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's just another one of those things uh, of how you pronounce it. No, I don't know whether it's phlogiston yeah. or phlogiston, yeah. but yeah. Um, uh, the, the the theory at the time, which was uh, put forth in the 1600s by a guy named Johannes Becker, um, said that um, substances contain this material, right. and that it was released upon burning. And air, according to um, scientists, were uh, uh, contained materials that were able to accept that 
phlogiston. Right. And burning stopped when either the substance ran out of phlogiston or the air got filled with it where I it see. couldn't accept anymore. Right. And so uh, Joseph Priestley rec- thought that air was just dephlogisticated, um, and, and that, um, uh, but he discovered it. As a, I see. As a, as a, as a substance. Yes, uh, you know, that makes sense. Um, it's, it's much like, and I, I'm sure you have more familiarity with this, that other kind of intangible, mysterious... I know exactly kind of, what you're heading yeah, you know, towards what, here. What am I, I think it's about? caloric that you're talking oh, about. Oh, okay, well, that could be the heat. Yeah, right? yeah. That's, that, you're not talking about no, that? No, but something that is else? one of those kinds of things that yeah. like, uh, theory got changed. Let me just, just say real quickly, caloric was a material that people felt like was a, something that was transferred when heat flowed. Mm-hmm. So let's say there was something cold next to something that was hot. The hot thing would get a little cooler, and the cool thing would get a little hotter because this stuff called caloric moved from one material to the other. And it's sort of – these original theories, like, aren't unintelligent. You no. Know, they, they make sense. Absolutely. But that's the thing about science. As, as you learn more – Things change, and and scientists are willing to accept those kinds of changes and and modify the way in which things are viewed. And and oftentimes too, if if a theory um, is completely wrong, have a revolution. The way in which you look at things be different. And uh, we talked about that in the um, mm-hmm. uh, podcast um, with uh, the about Linus Pauling. Oh, oh, yeah. oh and both yeah, things. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. I'm confused. See, I think I take credit for that, and you can take credit for it too. Those are previous. It's in if both. You listen to those, then, then you want to you want to pay attention to that, but. Um, so um, what I was thinking about was this mysterious thing called the ether. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. so, you know, definitely. there was a time in which people were trying to measure the speed of light. And, yep, uh, yep. The Michelson-Morley experiment was about find, discovering Yeah, they the had ether. this specific kind of device that they used called an interferometer. And based on uh, interference between the light that was reflected off various surfaces of this device, they can determine the speed of light. Yes, yeah. And so, but that was another sort of debunked thing. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the speed of light was constant no matter mm-hmm. which direction the light was traveling whether it was mm-hmm. with the ether right. or against the ether and right. so um that was just one of those other kinds of things that you know comes to mind and i think it really uh shows about the, the richness of the history of science is mm-hmm. that the, the, you know new information comes in and scientists are willing to change their ideas right and so joseph Priestley did discover oxygen in a sense as deflogisticated air (laughs) so if you're having trouble thinking it my brother's having trouble pronouncing it and pronunciation is a big deal today right yeah (laughs) so um uh but carl chalet actually discovered it a year before Priestley published his paper but Priestley really got the credit because you know publication is what scientists try and get to first now these days to get that kind of shows again the social nature of uh, science as an endeavor yes unless you share it with somebody you're going to take the your risk of not being associated with it. Right. But eventually, uh, history gets revisited, and mm-hmm. oftentimes, um, you know, people get their due. Uh, so, uh, but there was another scientist who's also given, oftentimes given credit for discovering oxygen, or at least the proper way in which combustion uh, is associated with oxygen. Sometimes I, well, he's called the father of chemistry. Yeah, I, I think it's Lavoisier, or uh, yeah. maybe I'm pronoun- mispronouncing <laughs> that as well, Lavoisier. Yeah, I would say like Lavoisier. Lavoisier. Yeah. yeah. All right, but, that uh, makes sense now you say it. Right, because he, he described uh, combustion in more of a, of a modern sense, that, that mm-hmm. it wasn't just um, a phlogiston uh, that was being put into oxygen, he thought, that the air was made of. That's Priestley. Um, um, Chalet went even further, still thinking about burning from a phlogiston perspective, mm-hmm. recognized that there were two aspects of air. And mm-hmm. then Priestley didn't recognize that, mm-hmm. uh, that there was like foul air and that there was fire air. So it was a mixture, and um, so the f- fire air mm-hmm. was the oxygen that he discovered, and the foul air 
was the nitrogen that we know is in the air these days. So um, Chalet, I think, did a little bit more than Priestley did, but still from a phlogiston perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 so the, the, the fire air was the dephlogisticated air. Uh, okay. part, a part of the air was a mixture. Okay. So, um, uh, but Lavoisier comes along and explains how oxygen is a part of combustion and reacts with the materials that are being burned and our modern view of what combustion is like. That sounds like a more modern chemical association to me. Exactly, yeah. And it's something that we could relate to and, and recognize is correct using today's ideas and data, which um, uh, confirms all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, you know, this uh, element oxygen was discovered by Chalet. It's extremely important for us. Oh you know, <laughs> it doesn't take much of a difference in the percentage of oxygen in the air to really change the way things are. Um, uh, you, know, you know what the percentage of oxygen is the air in the air right now? Well, my my memory tells me it's like around 20, 21 percent, something it, like that. Uh, it's it's it, you know even though it's a mixture, it's a pretty consistent mixture mm-hmm. of about twenty one percent oxygen. But because it's a mixture, it could vary. Right. Uh, and did you know how low it has to go in order to become like somewhat of a problem for human beings who who rely on this life giving element? It's not too much. I mean, like I think if it differ- differs by even a little, it could be a problem. So I'm going to take a guess, yeah, and it's just guess. a guess here of around seventeen percent. Yeah, and and and, uh, and again, I'm not I'm sure. not knowing this ahead of time. I'm just kind of like right, remembering. Right. Uh, most of the time, what we recognize is anything below nineteen point five percent. It doesn't wow. have to vary much. Okay. Uh, uh, where we start to have issues with the percentage of oxygen that's in the air being, uh, you know, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do any kind of exertion, and you're uh, at, uh, below like nineteen point five percent, anywhere like from sixteen to nineteen point five percent, any type of exertion you do is going to cause you to uh, have like a rapid heart rate. Um, um, you're going to have trouble breathing. Uh, you can have impaired thinking uh, when the uh, oxygen level is that low. Um, so anything like above 16, but uh, lower than 19.5%, you have problems if you're, if you're trying to do something. But, can can but, you just sleep maybe okay? If yeah, if you're not exerting on. yourself, okay. uh, I think it, it wouldn't be as a, pro- a mm-hmm. problem. But if it drops down to between 12 and 16%, mm then you don't even have to be exerting yourself. Wow. And, and you'll run into those same kind of problems. You get a rapid heart rate. Uh, your attention's uh, impaired. Uh, you can't think as straight. Your coordination's mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Even when you're resting, if the percentage was only 12 to 16%. So um, th- this percentage of oxygen that's in the air is critical toward our health. Uh, if you mm-hmm. go down to between 10 and 14%, um, your judgment is impaired. Exhaustion um, is, is expected even with like minimal movement. Um, you get nauseous when you go down to about six to ten percent. Uh, you get convulsions. Apnea happens, like a cessation of breathing. And then, um, you know, if you get around six percent, um, you follow uh, those things up with cardiac standstill. <laughs> so <laughs> that sounds uh, really bad. Yeah, and so uh, that's why it's really important uh, that the percentage of oxygen you, be good. You may be uh, in the future on this podcast talk about maybe mountain climbing or whatever. Yeah. Uh, are you going to do that? So I don't want to break into that too soon. No, you here, can but, do that. Yeah, I don't have okay. any plans right well, now. Well, the reason I was thinking about it is because I have climbed. Not I'm not a mountain climber, but I've done hikes in mountains and stuff. And I know that when I get to the higher peaks. It just gets really difficult to do almost anything. Like a little a step forward yes. seems like a lot of energy being uh, d- dissipated. Um, 
you really don't have completely all your faculties. And so I imagine, I don't know what the percentage decrease is as you climb in altitude, but there's got to be something associated with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though the percentage might stay the same if it's a, a mixture, but the amount of, um, of air that the percentage is working on gets less right. and less. Actually, so less you, air yeah, there. Less yeah. air there. Yeah. Less the percentage air. doesn't change I see, until yeah. you really like, um, you know, um, go pretty high up in the atmosphere. So you're still taking in less oxygen per breath. Right. And that's really the bottom line. That's exactly yeah. right. The amount of oxygen, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you go um, to higher levels of oxygen, you can run into problems as well. Mm. So not only, you know, dropping to as little as, as 2%, but going up by as little as 2%. Wow. You know what it might cause a risk of? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what is it that oxygen's now known to be oh oh, oh it caused a lot of fires and yeah, so yeah, yeah. it becomes an extreme yeah. fire hazard yeah uh so um you know even just like turning on a light switch where um a little spark might occur uh could cause things that are combustible to uh you know ignite right and so um uh you know uh, that that percentage of 21 percent sort of like a little a knife's edge that we that right. we uh, um live on and so um, it makes my really sitting good. here feel precarious. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be really careful. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, that's why we need to have like a, you know a certain amount of trees, uh, you know, mm -hmm. forests, uh, because so much the oxygen gets gets put back in uh, that gets used up, and so that percentage of oxygen is an extremely uh, important number. And it's something I think other people should recognize. Do you know what the other thing is that's in air? 21% oxygen and... Well, nitrogen is a really big component. That's right, that. about 78% yeah. nitrogen. Mm -hmm. The third most abundant element, people, most people do not know. Well, I, I might know this because I was t t talking about like uh, the greenhouse effect and so on a long time ago. Is it methane? It's not methane. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a lot of people think it's carbon dioxide. Uh... But it's, it's actually the carbon dioxide percentage in, in, in normal air is really kind of low. It's okay. still a problem because sure. of the greenhouse effect, yeah. but um, the, number, the number three uh, gas is... This is Ben again from Sonic Acrylic. Really hope you enjoyed the clip we played at the last break. Going to play another one here for you off of track six on the album. This is called Forever. That was track six forever off of our new album, Alternates. You can find more at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and wherever else you listen. Thanks. The number, the number three uh, gas is argon. Whoa. Yeah. That seems so... It, it's about 0.9%. So wow. if you add up argon, nitrogen, and oxygen, you're at 99.9% oh. .9 okay. of the air. Yeah. yeah. I should have been doing that in my head. Yeah. That makes... So, yeah. But argon is number three. And okay. then carbon dioxide is four. And then there's like small, small amounts of other things, obviously. So but, methane um, is a lower than that then? Oh, yeah. Methane and, is pretty low. I don't remember what okay. it is on the on And the carbon dioxide right now, as well. Carbon dioxide is four. Yeah, number wow. four. So, okay. Um, and even though we breathe that out, you know, right. uh, uh, it's, still, it's still not as high as uh, those other top three. So, mm -hmm. so uh, 
the thing is, like, um, Chalet wasn't given credit for his discovery of oxygen, at least initially, because he failed to publish right away. Priestley did. And then Antoine Lavoisier in 1777 was recognized as sort of coming up with uh, the way in, in which oxygen plays a role in combustion different than the phlogiston theory. Right. And so um, you know, it's important to give all three of those guys credit because they, they all contributed in a certain way toward things. But I think most people, looking back on history, would give Chalet the, uh, the first um, credit for discovering oxygen. Mm-hmm. There's a fellow who uh, wrote a play about oxygen. I mean, it is an important element, as we've been talking about, so wouldn't yeah. it make sense that a, that a play has been uh, written about oxygen? It wow. was by a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, who I hmm. really, really like. Uh, he, he is um, a, a prolific writer and, and also a lecturer. He, he is a professor at Cornell University on oh. the Nobel Prize. You know who I'm talking about? Well, I know I know Carl Sagan was at Cornell, but that's not that's him. Possible, right? yeah, yeah. But, but it's not him. No, the fellow I'm talking about is named Roald Hoffman. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, Roald Hoffman wrote this play along with uh, Carl Jurassi, uh, um, and he uh, tried to uh, come up with a story about the Nobel Prize Committee giving out um, retro prizes. Mm. You know, now nowadays, like you can't win a Nobel Prize if you're dead. There's right. no posthumous winning of those things. And so um, uh, Hoffman and Jurassi made up this story, this play about giving out a retro Nobel Prize for the discoverer of oxygen. Hmm. But, as we've been talking about, the Nobel Prize committee had a hard time deciding who it was. And so uh, the play was about about these three scientists sort of arguing amongst themselves about who who, who discovered oxygen. Well, first. I'm interested to find out what happens. Well, in, Maybe you're going to wait till the end of the podcast for well, that? Well, or, I can yeah. tell you now because okay. um, uh, it's, it's actually not a super long play. Okay. You can probably read the play in about 45 minutes. Uh, that's a really small book. I remember buying it on Amazon several years ago, and I felt bad because I only paid like 79 cents for the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> Big budget. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this Nobel Prize winning author writes this play, and you can buy the play for 79 cents on Amazon. It's, um, it speaks to our, uh, you know, value we put on science exactly, in our society yeah. in some ways. But I don't think it was ever done on Broadway or off-Broadway, but I know it was performed at several colleges. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, at Cornell, yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly, at Cornell. <laughs> yeah. but, um, so um, he wrote this play, and at the end of it, it really leaves it open. Because uh, oh. the question really is, like, what is discovery? That's really mm-hmm. the heart of the play. Mm-hmm. What, what, what each one of the scientists, uh, Chalet and Priestley and Lavoisier, all did something around the same time, and, 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 and all of them contributed toward our understanding of what oxygen is. Right. So uh, I think the play is really uh, about um, you know, giving credit um, to, um, uh, things, to the different scientists in, in different ways, you right. know, depending upon what it is you want to emphasize. Well, I like think this is really a continuation of what I think our listeners are going to hear in each and every one of our podcast episodes is, you know, the, the again, the social aspect of science and how uh, it's a it's a team effort, basically. Absolutely. And we're not afraid of, of moving on and improving upon ideas and at the same time recognizing how amazing it is to come up with some ideas in the past that might not be acceptable today, but still the incredible amount of mental work that it would have to go into coming up with this stuff. And I know one of the podcast that I have planned to do with you in the in the near future has a similar theme but with a different topic but a very similar sort of like we're all in this together sort of thing and the idea comes from that. Yeah, yeah this idea is kind of ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I asked at the beginning like uh, you know what's fair? What is fair? Right. You know is 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 it was it fair that uh, Lavoisier became probably the most 
known, and then Priestley as well in terms of oxygen, and Carl Chalet, most people never heard of. Um, but he was really the first person to, to, um, to discover this. He said once, uh, to explain new phenomenon, this is my task. And how happy is the scientist when he finds what he so diligently sought, a pleasure that gladdens the heart. That's very and nice. so I think that maybe Schley wouldn't really care if he got uh, the credit or not. Because mm-hmm. what he said finally was, it is the truth alone that we desire to know. And what a joy there is in discovering it. So I think that you know, whether he got the credit or not wouldn't matter to Carl Schley. It's just the fact that he found it and was able to add to you know, mankind's understanding of things. Sounds interesting, Mark. Thanks a lot for sharing that. All right. And with that, then we'll close today's podcast. Hope you listen to the next one. Take care, everybody. Bye. This has been MySciencePrep.com's Chemistry and Physics Podcast. It was produced in Pittsburgh, PA. Visit MyScience-Prep.com for more episodes.